I'm David Kilpatrick, and uh, on behalf of the Football Collective, I'd like to welcome you to a special podcast on the state of soccer in the States, 2020 Vision uh, SWOT Analysis. Uh, I'm David Kilpatrick. I'm professor of English Literature and Sport Management at Mercy College, where I'm also the program director of sport management. I'm also the club historian of the New York Cosmos. I'm joined today by Bo Dur, Tom McCabe, Maggie and Tim, and Zach Smith. And I will leave it to each of you to give a little bit better introduction of yourselves before we dive into the discussion proper. Beginning with you, Bo, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, I'm most known for working uh, 10 years at USA Today, where soccer wasn't necessarily my full-time job, as I'm sure a lot of you can relate, but it was something that I uh, tried to push as much as I could. Uh, since then, I've been freelance uh, for... Uh, still USA Today for a little while, then uh, ESPN and The Guardian and 442 and a few other places. I've written, I, I don't know whether to say four or five books now, because a couple of them have been sort of mini books, including the one I just did on 2012 and women's soccer. I've also done uh, Long Range Goals, uh, which is a history of major league soccer that came out in 2010. And uh, my most recent full-fledged book is Why the U.S. Men Will Never Win the World Cup. My name is Tom McCabe, and I'm an adjunct professor of history at Rutgers University, Newark. I'm also president of the Society for American Soccer History, working on a book right now on one of the oldest football associations in the world. Yes, the American Football Association formed in 1884 in Newark, New Jersey. Uh, also, uh, with some uh, fellow producers and writers, uh, released Soccer Town USA, an American soccer documentary uh, on YouTube during the pandemic. Uh, and it tracks uh, three boyhood friends, Tab Ramos, Tony Miol, and John Harks, and uh, how they make it to two World Cups. And it's a uh, kind of quest uh, to get to the cup. And, and it's about those three characters and the town of Kearney as an American soccer place going well back into the 19th century. Hello everyone, I'm Maggie and Tim. Um, I'm currently a soccer agent, or as you know, everyone says in Europe, a football agent, um, certified with FIFA and uh, United Soccer Federation. Um, I'm, I'm mostly known for uh, my previous you know, experience uh, more so on the sponsorship and partnership side. I've done that for almost 10 years within various industries from the music industry to then crossing over into sports. So just working for organizations like Madison Square Garden and then, you know, um, off to companies like Coca-Cola and working on different sponsorships and partnerships accounts with uh, FIFA and MLS and then making that transition into not just being a a soccer agent, but also owning my own agency, uh, Trinity Three, uh, which provides services within player representation, marketing, management, and experiential events. Um, at the present moment, I'm working on a few transfer um, opportunities. As we all know, this is the transfer window, the beginning of the transfer window um, for football, and so it's it's really um important. And then I also work with a few players within USL here in America, as well as MLS. And, and yeah, I'm excited to be a part of this. 
my name is Zach Smith. I am um, just recently an associate, or sorry, assistant teaching professor uh, in the Department of Kinesiology at Penn State Harrisburg. Um, my area of interest particularly is uh, sport and religion. Um, soccer is kind of a, a sub subspecialty hobby uh, passion of mine. Um, I've written a little bit about grassroots soccer in the U.S., particularly supporter ownership initiatives in the U.S., uh, looking at the lack of regulation, ethics, these kinds of things um, involved in that. And uh, I am a Grand Rapids FC fan, as well as a Leeds United supporter. Okay, well, the, the ground rules for, the, for our game today is... Uh, uh, to take a look at uh, soccer in uh, 2020. Uh, as we're talking today, it's the 1st of July, Wednesday, um, heading into uh, July 4th uh, weekend. So um, whether or not you celebrate the independence of this country um, and the state of the nation right now is we're at the midpoint of, uh, of most uh, memorable 2020 and to what degree um, our eyes have been blurred by the past six months, or if we can see with any clarity um, our way out the rest of this year uh, and into the future, I thought a, a, an interesting way of taking stock in uh, the state of soccer in the United States would be to try a SWOT analysis, uh, to look at our strengths and weaknesses internally as a soccer nation, and then look at the opportunities and threats that are facing us as a soccer nation. Uh, and so uh, we'll just go in that same sequence with which we uh, introduced ourselves, um, beginning with uh, strengths. Uh, Bo, uh, do you identify any strengths whatsoever in U.S. soccer uh, the midway point through 2020? Well, the good thing about uh, soccer in the U.S. is that uh, soccer is cool. Soccer is hip. And for, I think, uh, three-fifths of us in this panel, we're old enough to remember when soccer was not cool and not hip, and uh, you were ridiculed for being a fan, and you didn't have many opportunities to watch it. Uh, now, uh, we have better opportunities to watch a lot of soccer than some European countries do. If you've ever uh, traveled overseas, and uh, I remember being in Barcelona and seeing uh, TV coverage in which uh, you see all the players take the field and uh, you see them all getting in position for the kickoff and then the whistle blows and they go back to two guys in the studio uh, because they can't show the actual game. Um, here we can watch that game probably and we can watch Premier League and we can watch uh, our own domestic leagues and it, of course it's uh, cool and hip at the youth soccer level as well. You know, they, um, you can play, you can watch and it's considered perfectly normal and part of the mainstream, uh, which was not always the case. So that's the biggest positive. So I'm going to attack this uh, from the point of view of the historian. Uh, this is Tom again, and uh, hopefully uh, I can get some help with David, because uh, certainly he's trod on this ground before, right? When the 2014 World Cup came around. He wrote a, a great uh, essay in Sport and Society, Soccer and Society, Amnesia and Animosity uh, towards the game. And I'm sure we can get into that. But our strength as a soccer nation is we have a history. Yes, we have a long history. It's as long as anyone else's. Uh, and then when it comes to this organization, SASH, 
uh, in the last couple of years, uh, we've reinvigorated this organization that started just before the 1994 World Cup. And we have a small but growing uh, core, hardcore, I could argue, of uh, committed folks uh, that include public historians, academics like David, uh, family members. You know, I'm recently on a phone call with a seventh generational player. Um, going back all the way to the 1870s, 1880s in the United States. And now uh, that seventh generation uh, is playing in the USA. Might I add seventh generation of professional soccer player. Uh, so we have a history. That is a strength uh, that we don't uh, flex enough, uh, but it's there and we should be proud of it. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Um, I mean, when we talk about the history of, you know, soccer and, and we look at what, what has happened in the past to where, to where we are now, I mean, if, if it wasn't for soccer, I wouldn't be able to be in the position that I'm in currently um, as an agent. And I feel like, you know, it's just exciting to see what's going to happen within the next 20 or 25 years of where soccer will be and probably one of it will probably be the number one sport um in america in the u.s and so for me it's it's an exciting time it's an exciting time i mean even in the current climate that we're in the fact that soccer was the first sport to actually resume um back you know after the global pandemic that says a lot and that, that to me that's a huge strength and we're seeing it from just the responses of, you know, the, the masses and, and people who are fans. So that's a strength to me. I think a, a strength that I see is the, um, and I'm not necessarily a historian, but more of a, a cultural sociological studies sort of person. One of the strengths that I see is, um, a very rich and deep cross-section of football cultures in the U.S. Uh, I've, I've gotten to experience a number of them in different places. I lived in Chicago for a few years and um, had the opportunity to go down in uh, the La Villita community and, and play pickup soccer with, you know, whoever collection of guys would meet in a parking lot. Um, you know, there are just a, a ton of local ethnic leagues in Atlanta, New York, Chicago, uh, Minneapolis. I mean, you name it. Many big cities have these, even smaller cities. Um, Knoxville, Tennessee has a, a really great Mexican community that plays. And I, I see this as an overwhelming um, strength, that there is such a, a deep and diverse well of soccer in the U.S. Very good. Yeah, uh, a lot of the strengths that I've had pinned down, uh, uh, the four of you covered pretty well. I just want to touch on a couple things uh, really quickly. You know, the very fact that we can talk about uh, a, a top flight uh, league lasting a quarter of a century um, is in and itself a strength. But if, of all the strengths in U.S. soccer, I would say 
the women's national team remains the greatest, most obvious strength. But on the men's side of things at the elite level, uh, we've got someone like Jesse Marsh having that fantastic season he's had uh, over in Europe. And uh, on the playing side, Christian Pulisic, of course, and what he's been doing for uh, Chelsea, uh, especially since uh, coming back from the pandemic break, are some really bright spots. But some other bright spots, uh, Zach in particular, you've already touched on this, but I think the idea of all the unregistered players that uh, kind of off the grid, um, that you can find a pickup game in places, uh, well, there is, the ubiquity of the game, one could say, is that uh, you can find somewhere, to, some game to join in at an informal level, just about any, any uh, zip code in this country now. And that's, uh, that's something that's changed a great deal in the 50 plus years I've been alive, that's for sure. It seems like a greater strength more than any other. And in terms of unregistered players, uh, that's even reflected in growth in scholastic soccer numbers. Uh, over, the, over the past, we've kind of uh, been dismissive and seen high school soccer as a, a weak uh, link in the chain, but uh, it's actually growing. There are more players on the boys and girls side than ever before. So that's a strength that, that we should look at. Um, but uh, again, strengths can uh, sometimes ap appear uh, to be weaknesses. Um, in, in, for instance, if you want to talk about the national team as a strength, uh, maybe you'd have to s say the women are the strength, but the men are, are the weakness. But uh, um, having thrown that out there, we'll start back up again with you, Bo, and, and your identification of weaknesses. Well, I do have to cheat a little bit and just uh, point one thing out uh, that you hinted at and that Maggie hinted at, which is that uh, talking about women's soccer, the first league back uh, was, in fact, the women's league, the NWSL. And uh, the ratings for the first game, uh, it got more than 500,000 viewers, uh, which is astounding and just shows, uh, first of all, the pent-up demand uh, for sports and for soccer in this country, but also the fact that women's soccer is very much in the mainstream and when they know a game is going on, uh, they pay attention to it. So that, that is certainly a strength. Uh, the weaknesses case, um, I tell the story all the time, being at the convention formerly known as the NSCAA convention, the annual coaches convention, uh, where we flocked into an auditorium to uh, see some people from Germany speak and one guy was asked the difference between the U.S. and Germany, and he said, in the U.S., you have so many organizations that claim to be leading the way in things in Germany, and he held up one finger. And so with COVID um, and what we've seen this year, you know, a country like Germany, I think, is well poised to, to weather that, and not just because uh, of how of their the governmental response and the public response to the disease itself, but as a soccer structure, uh, they're well poised to withstand it because they have one. And we really don't. We have a scramble uh, between so many entities, uh, especially in youth soccer. Uh, and that scramble is continuing now. I mean, just every day there's something new coming up uh, at the elite soccer level. And then if um, that leads to more cost, it leads to more barriers to entry, even in high school soccer. I mean, there isn't enough high school soccer to go around. You can have 100 people try out for a 22-person team. So, again, it's just having all of those different stakeholders, and then that inevitably leads, well, it shouldn't be inevitably, but in this country it is, uh, to lawsuits. And right now, the U.S. women's soccer team, as successful as they are, uh, they are 
they claim in court that they are owed more money than U.S. soccer is due to have in a couple of years. And the reasons why that happened are way beyond the scope here, but it just shows um, how muddled um, things have been. And some of it is the leadership of the Federation. Some of it is just that um, this is a country in which um, youth soccer people, if they don't like a league is being run, they don't complain to the league or they might complain a little bit, but then they form their own. And so that's us. We're so individualistic. And at some point, you have to have a collective effort to get this going. I'm going to cop out and continue to talk about um, history. And I think I see three things here. You know, first, uh, a weakness is we have this tendency to apologize too much. You know, this inferiority complex, uh, if you will. Uh, on my desk right here, I have a bunch of papers all over the place. And I'm, I'm writing uh, a chapter on what you could call the first American soccer historian, this fellow by the name of Sam Foles, Bolton born, um, I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, father's from Bolton. Uh, he's Canadian born and then comes to the United States as a child and grows up in the Boston area. And uh, I'm looking at a Soccer America article he wrote in 1982. He was the official USSF uh, historian at the time. And he says, quote, the American soccer heritage is something that we can proudly display to the world without any apologies. So I think in a weakness is we still tend a couple generations later to um, apologize. This group, um, uh, SASH, that Sam Fold started in 1993, um, that we've reinvigorated, uh, I think we're still too small and, and our platform is, is too limited. Uh, so the history and heritage of the game, as Sam would call it, uh, doesn't get enough uh, voice. And then third, a weakness um, is we're not diverse enough. We're not hearing this diverse uh, set of American soccer stories, what Sam Folds called, quote, his, the historic kaleidoscope of American soccer. Uh, so we need, uh, you know, more representation from a, across the American the soccer scape uh, to tell those stories. So I agree with both what, what Bo as well as what Tom has um, said. And so my views on weaknesses of soccer within the USA um, from two sides. It's, it's from an agent side as well as a fan of the sport. So one being the lack of so what I'm, I want to say, um, the lack of, of um, support. Um, and when I say support, meaning really starting from the grassroots, starting from the youth side, to be able to really develop homegrown talent. Um, I think Bo touched on it in terms of, you know, when you look at youth programs. And I mean, I was nodding my head um, right when he said, that instead of you know complaining or or bringing those issues that you may have to the federation instead we're just going to create something new and which is why we have so many of these different programs and it, it's tons it's tons but but the question is like how many are really um 
or which one is the great one that you can really say there's talent being developed. When I look at places like England, for example, I can show you two, two leagues, two youth programs, two youth academy programs that is known for developing talent for years. But even for me as an agent, I have a hard time finding you know, programs that do that. So that's on one side. And on the second side, just being a woman, the lack of, you know, media coverage for the women's league. And, you know, like it was mentioned earlier, as far as the National Women's um, Soccer League being the first to, to resume, and I tuned in to both matches um, this past, you know, Saturday the 27th. And I even then went to look at the stats and see how many people were viewing this and even so much as to where which countries or which you know cities were they viewing this from and the stats were interesting and so I, I even now a day like today I had to watch the match on my my phone from a mobile application so I felt like man why why is it that you know as women um and and, and for the women's um league there's just not enough coverage there's just not enough coverage. And, and so hopefully, you know, at, at some point they'll reevaluate and say, okay, maybe we need to give more coverage um, to, you know, the women's league and, and even more for MLS. Um, and then on the third part, Tom touched on this as far as, you know, diversity and, um, you know, just, just really getting that wider, um, perspectives you know being able to talk to people from different um backgrounds <laughs> because in america here we're one of the most diverse you know nations in the world and sometimes even for someone like myself being a female it's it's hard to to have those conversations or even debates because i'm a female so sometimes i'm not even taken serious or my opinion doesn't really matter so um i, I definitely agree um, that we do need a more um, diverse perspectives on it. And, and those are just some weaknesses that could turn into strengths and hopefully will turn into strengths. I think, I think that's a great seg for what I sort of, the couple things I wanted to pinpoint. And uh, I think there are, uh, uh, there are several very specific ways that um, lack of diversity is really a weakness and is, and is hurting soccer in the U.S. right now. A couple of those are, uh, one, coaching education and the cost of coaching education. Um, it, it's, it's very expensive. Uh, it's exclusivist. You know, you have to, to, to do the higher licenses. You have to have coached at certain kinds of academies and places and had certain experiences just to qualify um, it really prohibits many people from pursuing coaching certifications. And, um, you know, that often splits down racial and ethnic lines. Uh, it means we have a lot more white coaches with certifications in the U.S. It means we have a lot more men with certifications in the U.S. Um, so coaching education is one place that I think we are really, really hurting. Uh, and I think is a, is a massive weakness. I think infrastructure is another one. If we were to plot where, where are the fields, 
Um, where's the access? Who has access? How do people get access? I think that would be another potential, uh, well, I think it is another weakness. Um, just, just from what I know of the way that fields are often scheduled, it's, it's clubs with money who can reserve the best times and, and get the reservations in early clubs who maybe don't have a parent or parents who can put up the cash for that, uh, struggle to get good field times and struggle to, to be able to have access to good facilities. So I think, um, you know, there are many more weaknesses than that, that I could keep talking about, but the ones that I feel most passionately about have to do with access to education, access to, uh, facilities and infrastructure. And I think we really need to, to think critically about who has access to these things and why and who doesn't and how, how can we make this access uh, more, equi more equitable for all. Great points, everybody. Just a few other things that I want to kind of add in or kind of add to here um, along those lines. Uh, while soccer is uh, in some ways ubiquitous and in many ways established, at least as a niche sport, we still struggle for cultural relevance, don't we? Um, we may have more soccer writers in the United States now than ever before, but we have fewer soccer writers making a living at doing so than ever before, at least since the 1960s. Uh, Bo, I think you'd probably confirm that, no? Uh, that in terms of soccer journalism, we've got more quality writers than ever before, um, but there are just fewer outlets that are willing to pay um, the writers to, uh, a living wage uh, to be covering the sport of soccer. And that's something we should have come a long, long way since then. Um, one statistic that came out just the last couple of days, if you were to compare uh, the top tier attendance per capita, the United States would be tied dead last with Lithuania um, as for uh, top tier attendance. And when it comes to TV ratings, although the NWSL Challenge Cup ratings so far have been uh, promising, um, just recently TNT uh, Bleacher Report uh, opted out a year ahead of their Champions League and Europa League coverage. And uh, some of us are even uh, having a sigh of relief over that. Um, but uh, what that means for coverage of those top uh, Euro leagues that we've been taken for granted in terms of our access uh, remains a little bit unclear. Um, unregistered players, there may be more opportunities for pickup than ever before. Um, and there may be more pubs in which to watch games uh, than ever before. Um, but in terms of registered players, especially on the youth side, our numbers are dropping, dropping, dropping. And that big, big, big weakness is uh, pay to play and the pay to play schemes that exclude so many. Uh, so to the degree to which pay to play is a socioeconomic, it promotes socioeconomic and geographic inequity uh, is something I, I suppose the five of us could, could keep talking for hours about that. Um, one uh, statement uh, that we may have forgotten over the past few months from that uh, chief provocateur of United States soccer, Alexi Lawless, suggesting that people should just migrate, uh, that that's uh, how the, the survival of the fittest ought to play out, uh, seems to many of us a really unfair way uh, to really have soccer be a pure meritocracy, which again kind of ties in with Maggie's uh, concern that we're not identifying talent. I really do think there's more talent here than ever before but I think we're doing a poorer job than ever before of actually identifying that talent. 
Um, and that also manifests itself in the struggles of uh, independent clubs and leagues. While uh, the sustainability of success uh, for MLS and, and USL and NWSL, um, for all of those uh, cases and examples of, of uh, clubs surviving, um, there are still so many independent clubs and leagues that are um, going to go extinct if they haven't already this year. Um, so whether it's NISA or the UPSL or any of the other of the alphabet soup leagues that come and go in the United States, um, the future is very uncertain for a lot of clubs. So there's some vulnerability. And, and Bo, you touched on this. The, the term I like to use for it is segmentation. Uh, for about the past 100 days, I've been trying to uh, at least tell myself I'm writing about how New York soccer is responding to uh, the coronavirus, but um, the segmentation of soccer in New York alone, uh, the way in which we're not integrated, um, the way they're the haves and the have-nots, and there's no cooperation between them, uh, the segmentation at the youth levels uh, between uh, what's dismissed as rec and what's exalted as uh, the elite levels, um, what happens in terms of the professional clubs and the clubs aspiring to be professional, um, those weaknesses seem to really be uh, brought to the fore all the more by, by the crisis of the pandemic. Um, and of course that all ties in uh, with the idea of governance. Uh, governance has been a problem uh, for the game uh, going back, has it not Tom, all the way back to the AFA. It still remains a weakness here. Uh, U.S. soccer is supposed to be a not-for-profit, but uh, uh, to what degree um, profit motives uh, reign supreme still seems to be the case. So there's a, a lot of weaknesses we can point out, but let's uh, let's shift over to opportunities. Uh, what opportunities are, are facing us now uh, as we're at the midpoint of 2020? Uh, well, as, as the journalist in the room uh, and to answer a couple of things that Maggie and uh, David uh, rose up, uh, that that is not an opportunity <laughs> because uh, that's simply the state of journalism right now. I mean, it's, um, in fact, it's worse if you follow uh, news uh, where, you know, local newspapers in particular are dropping off and that is creating what are called news deserts. Um, within soccer, uh, what you've had, especially in women's soccer, has been a lot of people who have come into soccer journalism treating it as an avocation. So it's something that they're doing on top of their jobs, um, as opposed to people coming up through the newspaper ranks. And, and even then, you know, there weren't soccer writers per se. Grant Wall was not a soccer writer at first when he started at Sports Illustrated. Stephen Goff uh, was not a soccer writer at first. Uh, they all have other beats that they've uh, been covering. Um, but we're losing the pipeline of coming up from newspaper experience and going into it. We're instead, we're having people who go into his navigation and some of them are fine writers. The problem is you're not going to get any diversity that way because you're talking about people who have the financial wherewithal to treat it as an avocation. And so that's going to be a pretty severe problem. Now, the opportunity there <laughs> is that uh, there are non-traditional media sources that have sprung up and in many cases done a, a pretty good job of things. I mean, you can, um, in some ways, it's nice to have people who are writing uh, and, and sort of what you might call semi-pro or an amateur level um, because uh, you can get 
more day-to-day coverage. You can have people going out and covering games that, you know, they may have a hundred people in the stands, um, but someone's out there uh, sharing a report on it. So um, all of that is an opportunity. And then we get the occasional opportunity here to hit the reset button. Um, and we've had changes in leadership recently. Uh, we, uh, both the CEO and the uh, president of, um, of U.S. soccer are, are new to the job. So uh, we'll see if any change can come out of that. Um, and we have a lot of people paying attention, which is good. So uh, there is more, I think, of a sort of a watchdog effect in place, even without you know, full-time soccer writers and, and so forth. And um, I think diversity, a lot of you have hit on it, and there is a, a program, and we'll have to, again, watchdog this and see how it goes, uh, but MLS and U.S. Youth Soccer are, have been working on a, a talent identification program that is supposed to go beyond the traditional realms. And so we'll have to see what comes out of that because, yeah, our diversity is our strength. And um, one one way to put that in perspective, I remember uh, going to the great uh, soccer bar Summers, um, you know, which is one of the first places uh, that had a reputation for showing soccer. It's uh, in Arlington, Virginia. And I went to go, I went there two separate, um, two consecutive days, uh, African Cup of Nations one day, FA Cup the next day. The room was packed both days. I think I was probably the only person who was there both of those days. So we have the diversity and if we can ever harness that, who knows what we'll be able to do. I'm going to start with uh, the outgoing president of U.S. soccer, Sunil Gulati, born in Alabad, India, comes here as an immigrant child, grows up in a soccer community, Stewart's Connecticut, uh, gets involved in organizing very early, uh, works his way up through the ODP program, kind of fixes that for Werner Fricker, the then president of U.S. soccer. Uh, and then uh, launches his, you know, kind of soccer career alongside his teaching career. Uh, the last conference I was at was the Princeton Soccer Conference in December 2019 before uh, the global pandemic. And Sunil was a speaker, and uh, he said, looking back uh, over his tenure, our expectations have risen. 25 years ago, we didn't have a league. 25 years ago, we didn't have this. We didn't have this. So if you look back to 1985, 35 years ago, um, our expectations have, certain, uh, have certainly risen, right? Well, you know, U.S. women had not won a, their first World Cup yet. There really wasn't even a, a U.S. women's national team. It was kind of a quasi-team in the mid-'80s. The men had yet to qualify for 40 years. We had, hadn't hosted – um, a World Cup. The top flight league had just gone defunct. There was no women's professional league. So yes, I think Sunil is right in some respects. Keep a perspective on what we've been able to accomplish over those kind of 35, you know, last 25 years. MLS, you know, the lower leagues, the women's league. Um, and then I think the real opportunity here is to look forward to 2026. Uh, when we host the World Cup with our neighbors, uh, Canada and Mexico. 
And uh, just to push this diversity narrative a little bit further, I remember reading a speech by Hank Steinbrecher, the USSF president uh, at the time, and it was titled E Pluribus Unum, what's on our, our coinage, right? From many, one. Uh, and I love to kind of overlay that over the American uh, soccer family. Um, doesn't matter where you came from. Uh, doesn't matter what boat or plane you came over on or if you were born here, um, you know, from many one. And it can make us, you know, certainly stronger uh, as a soccer nation and certainly headed towards this great opportunity of 2026. So I would say, um, you know, some opportunities is kind of just piggybacking off of what we were discussing before, um, and at least for me, uh, when it comes to the women, you know, to the National Women's uh, Soccer League, just looking at ways to, um, you know, cover those matches, cover those games, just the same way they would with the men. Um, I think another opportunity could be, the men's on the men's side from like MLS to even kind of support the women. Um, I, I see a few players that tend to support, but I think if we have more, um, more support from the men's side, that would also help. If you look within other countries and other leagues, the men are pretty supportive, whether it's sharing uh, social media content or actually tuning into the, the games um, itself and you know even if that's showing support or learning um, you know who who's the best player or who, who should we look at and so I think on that side it's good and then um, you know there was a, a topic about pay to play I think with that model um, with the recent cancellation of you know the um, DA here in the US, hopefully there's some type of reevaluation going on to say, okay, what's another, or what's a better model that we can um, come up with to, you know, really hone in on, on talent and, you know, going back to the grassroots side and, and just really figuring out how can we help develop the talent um, to be homegrown players all the way from the academy level to MLS, as opposed to where you may see some players once they either finish on the university level or depending on how good they are, instead of staying in the U.S., they're going somewhere else. So the, the goal would be to want to keep talent here. And so hopefully there's, there's just ways and strategies that, um, you know, U.S. soccer is figuring out how can we um, keep our talent here in America and also grow that talent here. So I feel like those could be some um, opportunities and definitely more, more, more coverage for the women's side. I'm just a huge advocate for uh, the, the women's soccer league. And, and, and those women are amazing, amazing. I think for me, uh, one of the biggest opportunities that I think we have has to do with um, the number of local clubs and the availability of seeing the game in person. Uh, growing up in upstate New York, um, I didn't, you know, there wasn't like a local club for me to watch or follow. Uh, I sort of was a New York, New Jersey's Metro Stars fan, um, but I didn't have cable. 
and was not really ever able to watch games on TV. Um, I went to a couple games here and there, maybe two or three over the course of uh, my whole childhood. And, you know, it's so different now. When I moved, I lived in Orlando for a couple of years. I got to watch Orlando City in, in USL. Um, living in Grand Rapids is sort of able to watch Grand Rapids FC grow. And, and in Michigan, you know, you've got local clubs kind of scattered throughout the state. Um, and so I think for me, one of the, the great opportunities that we have is um, to get fans not only seeing the game on TV, but to get them in the stands and, and get them falling in love with the game in person and creating uh, culture and community around it. I mean, and I think that that's the case for both men's and women's soccer. One of the highlights as a fan that I've had um, highlight experiences was watching uh, the Grand Rapids women win a national championship a couple of years ago. I think there was a thousand or eleven hundred people there. We were playing at they were playing at a small high school, um, and and it was packed. Like the stands were packed, and that to me was one of the one of the peaks as a fan um, experience. And I I think that you know as we connect more people to those kinds of experiences and connect them on the ground to community and create local cultures and communities. I think that that, um, that can go a long way to reinvigorating some energy in, into the sport. Absolutely. I, I think the, uh, the, by putting all sport uh, on pause, uh, it's it's created an opportunity for all of us to kind of reevaluate, uh, figure out what matters, what matters the most, and uh, given what matters most to us, how can we make things uh, better and to be the best they can possibly be? Um, one thing, you know, although I'm I'm faculty uh, downstate at Mercy College, uh, I'm, I split my time up in the Mog Valley. So Zach, you talked about upstate New York, uh, myself and. Uh, midfielder who I'd coached uh, 25 years ago um, and a couple other people are trying to put together a, a Mohawk Valley Warriors team to represent the, um, our, our area of, of upstate New York uh, hopefully on a national stage at some point whether that would be with with uh, the NPSL or, or one of the other entities is a little bit unclear to us but um, through time Again, you know, I was taught how to play the game by my father, who played in the late 1950s. Uh, my my son is coaching now. My daughter still plays. Um, a coach, or excuse me, a player that I coached 25 years ago, is still playing and is interested in, in administration of the game and things like that. Um, so we've literally built up generations now, uh, more and more and more soccer expertise that can be passed on to future generations. So um, I think there's a really great opportunity there. I know that. In many ways, volunteers have been very much burned out. And uh, anecdotally, that's, that's been what I've encountered with people up here in the Mohawk Valley, especially um, people that were doing it all by themselves. Maybe uh, by having things on pause, they can kind of reboot or re recharge. Uh, but certainly, we have an opportunity right now to reseed the grassroots. So um, hey, perhaps that's uh, the greatest opportunity uh, facing us. Um, Soccer is in many ways established in the margins, 
Um, it's still a niche sport in, in some ways in relation to mainstream popular culture. Um, but between MLS is back, the NWSL Challenge Cup, and if at the grassroots levels, if community-based clubs can uh, put something together in real meaningful ways for their communities, uh, programs that can be sustainable, drawing upon the expertise that's been built up now over generations, uh, perhaps uh, if we really seize this moment, um, the opportunities are there to, to really uh, build our soccer nation. Um, but let's uh, bring it to the less uh, optimistic uh, phase of things, um, threats facing the game. Lawsuits, um, that, that's a big one. Um, I think I mean, it's very easy to jump on the women's soccer bandwagon when they say equal pay. It's, very, it's much more difficult to define what that means, particularly in hindsight. Um, and in fact, the deals that are in Norway and Australia that have been uh, hyped as equal pay uh, really aren't uh, because they pay uh, the same percentage of FIFA prize money and FIFA prize money is way out of whack. Um, so I think trying to settle a lot of things, I think that, um, you know, settling would be uh, an imperative. And I, I think, you know, I have to touch on what Zach said about coaching education. Um, you know, the, the threat is that our kids don't start uh, from a good place. And that, you know, I actually meant to mention that a little bit in the opportunity because uh, you can go online now and at least give parent coaches and uh, around the world. I mean, you're not going to have professional coaches start working with kids at age four. Um, you know, you're going to have, you know, the, the places where we look um, at success stories like in, um, Iceland and um, England and Germany. Uh, those are places where you have volunteers who have B licenses. And so the, the threat that we have is not overcoming our geographical um, distances there and the cost that we've unfortunately baked in to a lot of these things. And so coaching education really uh, boils down to um, that biggest of threats, costs. Um, barriers of entry for coaches, barriers of entry for players. Uh, and you know, that's difficult to harness because, again, it's the fragmentation and it's uh, a club that wants to play uh, another club that's 500 miles away instead of playing the club that's five miles away. Our greatest threat or threats, uh, the American soccer culture wars, as I call them. Uh, and we've talked about many of these, uh, the pay to play, men and the women, uh, uh, our diversity, you know, can it be our greatest strength or is it indeed our greatest weakness as uh, we move forward? So I would say those culture wars are clearly uh, things that, that we need uh, to work on because in some respects we're, or we can be our own worst enemies. Uh, I mentioned that first of American soccer historians, I'm looking at another soccer America a quote of his, there was an interview uh, with Sam Folds, and he says in 1976, year of uh, the bicentennial, actually the greatest deterrent to the progress of American soccer is to be found among the soccer fellowship itself. So this soccer fellowship is what we need to work on. Uh, we need to work on growing the community, the civic engagement, getting along and, and pushing 
uh, you know, the game forward, moving the ball along, uh, if you will. Uh, so I think the answer there, um, and I'm going to say something that could most certainly come out of David's mouth because we talk about this all the time, towards cosmopolitanism, towards more inclusion, uh, more involvement more voices, right? Uh, he's also a poet and, uh, you know, the varied carols of America, right? We see this chorus with everybody singing, everybody contributing, um, and their various carols make us uh, who we are uh, as a people. So I'll end with that as we look towards July 4th and our celebration of independence. Well, once again, I'm going to piggyback off of what, uh, you know, what Bo said, uh, lawsuits, that's a big one. Um, I, I don't, you know, I've tried to wrap my head around it to, to really dive in and wonder if, you know, um, the Federation really understands, you know, why or, or even how that came about and what they're really fighting for. And, you know, uh, until the Federation looks within and, and really understands that and whether that's um, finding a way to compromise to then, you know, agree on a, a settlement that'll work, um, th that's a big issue. And other types of lawsuits in the future could be um, a huge issue. I also feel like a threat um, to, you know, soccer here within the U.S., that pay-to-play model, uh, it, it just really needs to be reevaluated. Um, it's really expensive. I have younger cousins, I have a younger brother that, uh, you know, plays soccer, but he's, he didn't want to play it because he felt like it was too much and, you know, his dad couldn't afford it. And so he said, okay, I'm just going to opt to play um, tennis or basketball because I'm a person who plays several different sports, so I can just go play that because it's, it doesn't cost as much to, you know, join, whether it's a league, an academy or whatnot. And so that pay-to-play model, and that's something that I've even heard from a lot of parents that have complained. And if you even look at what has happened now in the current climate that we're in, a lot of parents, they lost out because whether they had to try to get to two to $3,000 for their child, and then, and the worst part is you don't even get a refund. And then with the whole, you know, academy being um, the, the DA be deciding that, okay, we're just going to cancel this all together. That's, that's heartbreaking. And, and what it does, it's, it's very discouraging to the kids because, you know, even though soccer is a pretty big sport in America, in America, America's favorite sport is, you know, the NFL, football, um, and then probably baseball and basketball. So, so kids are not going to have the desire to want to pursue you know, a career in soccer or even just play, even though that might be their passion, they're probably going to go and pick up a basketball instead or even try to say, okay, let me learn the American football um, style so that maybe one day I can go to the NFL, even though my heart is in soccer, but it's, it's too much and my family can't afford it. So definitely revisiting that pay to play model. Um, I feel, you know, just, just maybe just compromising, finding a way that it works for both parties where it works for, you know, um, the organization and it works for the families. The families are able to afford it. Their kids are able to, you know, um, be happy because they're, they're living their dream. And so just looking at 
those, you know, the pay to play model as well as um, figuring out how to avoid uh, more lawsuits. And then, and then also even with that, back to the lawsuit side for the women, you know, it's, it's, making, it's making the sport of soccer in America more enticing. I, I just feel like it's not as enticing as the way I hear from, whether it's young kids or, you know, young players in, in um, I could be in England or I could be in France and talking to these young guys, or I can even go to a country in Africa like Ghana and that's, the, the kids are so excited to play. But when they, when you say to them, do you want to come to America to play? It's like a last resort. It's, it's not a first option to say, oh my gosh, yes, that's, that's where my heart is set. The, the players that are in other countries, when they look at America and say, okay, I want to play soccer in America, it's because they're either reaching their last resort and they say, hey, I'm probably going to retire in about two years, so I'll come and play there. Or even as a young kid to say, hey, you want to come to America to maybe go to a university and, and play you know, while you're in college? It, it's not a desire. It's not something that they, that they desire. So it's really just honing into that and figuring out um, how to make it more enticing for, you know, um, the future, for the future um, soccer players. I think um, a couple of the threats that I see, one, I, I don't remember who mentioned this earlier, but I think one of the greatest threats that we have is ourselves. Uh, perhaps at this, at the moment, particularly the, the Federation and the, and the, um, the folks in the Federation and the, you know, the long, the old guard, as it were, um, you know, I think if things don't change at some point, we're going to keep getting what we've always got. Um, I think the other threat is sustainability. And I'm, I guess I'm thinking, uh, on a, on a club level about this, um, both at the both in MLS, um, NWSL, but all the way down to you know NPSL and and NISA and these other USL and uh, the 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 whole umbrella collection of leagues that we have. How do clubs um, ensure that they can come back year to year and? play. Um, I think the reason that's so important is because you get, you get volunteer burnout. You also get fan burnout. And when we have, when we have clubs, you know, who are around for three years and gone or worse, even one and done, um, fans get excited about having a club to be a part of, and then it's, it disappears. And then maybe another one pops up a couple years later and it disappears. And eventually uh, you give up. I'm not going to be a part of that anymore. It's too hard to be invested because it's, it's, it's going to go away anyway. And so I think, um, you know, finding better models, both at the professional level, at the amateur, elite amateur level, and also at the grassroots level. And I think as Maggie was um, talking about pay to play, this is, this is part of that, finding a better model so that more people can participate, right? So that, um, you know, we don't get selected out because we can't afford the thousands of dollars it takes to play, uh, in these, in these travel leagues. Um, 
Yeah, so I, I think sustainability is the other thing that I would really identify there. Well, thanks all of you. Um, some really uh, fantastic analysis on uh, all four of those areas. Uh, you know, uh, whenever you have a birthday, it can uh, be a time to celebrate, but can also be a time for some really tough uh, self-reflection and, and critical analysis. Uh, and uh, as we uh, approach uh, our uh, nation's birthday this weekend, we've got a lot to think about as a nation, much less as a soccer nation. Uh, this does seem to be a very critical point for us in so many ways. So um, I want to thank you all, Bo, Tom, Maggie, and Zach, uh, for a really, really fun discussion. Um, whether we're looking at U.S. soccer with uh, clear 2020 vision uh, or not, um, how, how clearly we're seeing things uh, from our uh, present, our uh, immediate past, and how well we're seeing into the future will remain to be seen. But uh, I want to thank you all for joining me, and thank you, thank you to the Football Collective for uh, giving us this opportunity to uh, provide a, a sense of the state of soccer in the States. So thank you all, and uh, dare I say, God bless America. America the Beautiful. Thank you, David. Yes, thank you, David. Thank you so much. Thank you, David. Thanks so much. Take care, everybody. Enjoy your 4th of July. You too, David. Thanks. You too. Thank you.